Welcome to NGA Notable Lectures, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of all things artistic. Art has existed almost as long as humankind with varying media, methods, and genres. Art has the power to inspire, heal, connect, and transform. It can serve as a memorial, a catalyst, a reflection, or a statement. The National Gallery of Art, in collaboration with the Foundation for Art and Preservation in Embassies, hosted their annual panel discussion with Mark Bradford, Agnes Gund, David Rubenstein, Frank Stella, and Darren Walker on April 15, 2018. This distinguished panel discusses the necessity of art in today's fast-paced world. This program is coordinated with the Foundation for Art and Preservation in Embassies. I'm Darren Walker, I'm Vice President of FAPE, and I want to welcome you to this conversation with four remarkable people. But first I wish to thank the trustees um, and Rusty, the National Gallery, um, for making this beautiful place available to FAPE. Um, and so I wanna, on behalf of Joe Carroll Lauder and Eden Rafshun, I want to say that we are here because we are passionate about art. And we have on this panel four people who are very passionate about art. This is what these four remarkable people share in common, although they each play a unique role on the landscape of American art. And there is no need for introductions because each of these people is a dazzling reminder of why the arts gives us oxygen, why philanthropy, arts philanthropy matters in this country, why the people who create art give us reason for hope and allow our imaginations to expand. So this conversation why is art necessary is not going to be one of those platitude-filled conversations about why the arts matter. We're going to get beyond the platitudes. These people are all pretty irreverent. I know each of them. And so I'm going to bring out their irreverence. And so why don't we start with my friend Mark Bradford, speaking of irreverent. So Mark. <laughs> Mark, you have been labeled by an art critic as a creative genius. You deal with issues of race, class, sexual identity. You are one of the most admired artists of your generation. Of course, we were all mesmerized by your installation in the American Pavilion at Venice, the installation at the Hirshhorn uh, now, which is uh, entitled Pickett's Charge. Um, tell us for you as an artist, um, in this moment in America, why does art matter? I don't think much has changed with me that much, actually. I've always been outward looking. Um, I've always thought that the social fabric of society was as seamless as art history. I never saw this um, this, this kind of wall between out there and in there. Sort of like Leonardo da Vinci never saw the difference between like art and science. I never saw the difference between like art and life, art and social art. So I just picked from whatever I wanted to pick from. Um, and it just kind of folds into my practice. I might go to things that I think, hmm, I want to change or I, I have things, I want to push back on things. I don't think that diversity is enough. Um, and when you start talking about power and power structures, so maybe that's where some of the, but I've never. Does your art deal with power and power structure? Oh, absolutely. I wouldn't have been an abstract painter. Um, the first thing, when I was in school and everyone kept saying, oh, oh, you're black and tell us about the black experience and you're gay, tell us about the gay experience. I said, oh, I think I'll be an abstract painter. For me. <laughs> For me, that was, what that was doing was that was giving me a space. I was carving out a space for myself to play and to figure out things on my terms. I wasn't, so that was really, I think a very, 
the surfaces weren't quote unquote political or being an abstract painter wasn't political, but to decide to turn my gaze away from kind of easy narratives or something that someone else was going to put on me, that I can interrogate ideas and figure out what black meant to me. And what does black mean to you? It's, 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 it's porous. You know, it's as slippery and, as, and it's as porous as any other people. I mean, just because you have a, a room full of the same color doesn't mean that all, the, all of the uh, ideas should be the same. And so it's, it's porous, that's it. But lots of, there are people who say, there are some African-American artists who say, I don't want to be labeled a black artist. I don't want my subject matter to have to be limited to issues that relate to African-Americans. Well, that's not me. I'm, I'm not, I'm fine. I'm fine being a black artist. I'm fine doing shows in Black History Month. It doesn't, I don't, I don't have a problem with being black. I have a problem sometimes with the easy equations that kind of mainstream society puts on that. There's nothing wrong with being, I'm fine. I wake up in the morning, I'm black, no problem. <laughs> <laughs> kind of getting old now, you know. I don't think that that is the problem, or, 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 or to be a woman, or to be whatever. It's the, easy, it's the reduced equations and the simplistic narratives that sometimes are put on it. It's just, it's expansive. And so that's what I've always moved towards in my work. So Frank Stella, President Obama awarded you the National Medal of the Arts. It's a good idea. <laughs> that was a good idea. <laughs> and I said there'd be no irreverence this evening. So Frank, um, you are yourself this extraordinary person who's able to create remarkable imagery in, you're a painter, you're a sculptor, you do these really cool prints. For you as an artist, you have seen, you've seen artists transition uh, from being merely uh, um, almost invisible people to being rock stars. I mean, Frank yeah, Stella I mean, is known all around the world. Yeah. Everyone knows who Frank Stella is. Right, but you say that, but it, in, in historical terms, it's simply not true. Uh, you know, uh, the celebrity status after the Second World War, all of a sudden, when Jack the Dripper was, uh, <laughs> you know, all over Life magazine. I mean, abstract expressionism made an impression not only in America, but I mean worldwide. Everyone wanted to experience the freedom of making a mess. <laughs> and so, uh, and being an artist at the same time. Uh, but, you know, it was different. And, uh, uh, but, you know, again, you're talking about a level of success and what's going on. But I mean, uh, it was a kind of history uh, when Blue Poles went from America to Australia for an unbelievable $2 million. Now, there are artists whom I won't mention here who <clears throat> uh, have make painting itself uh, for more than $2 million on, their, on a regular basis. But anyway, that's what it's about. I mean, there was sort of... That's right. There's no, you're, not, you're not throwing shade at any artist on this panel, I know. And so, and so would you, though, agree that for you, I mean, what you did as an abstract artist, what you did to the flat surface, the sort of normative idea of thinking about what abstract art looked like on a canvas. You completely turned that on its head. Yeah, I'm not so sure. Uh, but um, it happened uh, for one reason or another that the surface, uh, working on a surface uh, became difficult. And I don't know what the inherent structure behind abstraction is in the 20th century that means or seemed to point that somehow two-dimensional uh, work had to somehow move uh, out into space or become three-dimensional. I think it's simply because uh, the notion of illusionism was disappearing, and flatness is hard to live with. And even though the painting before was uh, on a flat surface, or a lot of it was, uh, it had depth, it had the experience of space, and somehow, the notion of abstraction and painting today, there was a kind of tremendous urge uh, to get out there, to move out. 
I mean, now you're inundated with installations, but during the 60s, there was a tremendous change. I mean, not, not only from, a, a, it wasn't just sculpture or three-dimensional. I mean, people wanted to get out of their studio and camp in the desert or have tractors push a lot of dirt around and things like that. So there was a way of, of moving around and a way of, you know, hiding in some kind of way from a, a simple projection of surface and a way of dealing with that, that that became art. Agnes Gund. It wasn't my fault. It wasn't your fault. <laughs> Agnes Gund, our beloved, dazzling Aggie. So we know you, of course, as one of America's great, great arts philanthropists, collector. You're the president emerita of MoMA. You founded Studio in the School. Uh, you have this remarkable legacy. And now you have thrown yourself into the issue of criminal justice and the reform of our criminal justice system that, I mean, you'd have to be under a rock to not know what you did, right? You sold one of the great Liechtenstein paintings for um, an unbelievable amount of money, most of which you took to start a fund to reduce mass incarceration in America. So, 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 so art obviously matters to you, Aggie. Talk a little bit about how it matters to you and why. Well, I, I just want to say to Mark that I love what Mark's doing with foster care kids. And I, I love the fact that he really saw a problem and tried to solve it there, is solving it. But you found good, good from it, haven't yeah. you? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, that, that's what I like to see, something that where money can do something and can not always solve the problem, but can at least, um, and there is a problem. The justice system is really awkwardly wrong in this country. Uh, it's, people are, you know, herded into these prisons, many of them not having done anything but not having good representation or anything like that, uh, or not being able to uh, get bail, get out, get a lawyer that really cares about them and their problem being in there. And I think um, there are a lot of people now working on this, and I think one of them that's doing a great job is your friend, Brian Stevenson, who really has, um, you know, come to grips with the fact that we have to know more about what happened to slaves in this country and why um, they have always had a lesser chance to do what they want. I don't know if you read that article recently that said that um, blacks who come from wealthy families don't do as well as white that, that come from the same kind of family. And I didn't think it explained it too well, but it really sent a ripple through our lives. And so I think it's largely because I think the system is not just, we have to get people, whether they be white or black, out of the, or brown or whatever, we want to say that somebody is out of um, being sort of stockpiled into this um, system. Well, when you and I recently, we went to San Quentin and we saw the impact of the arts in that art class and the research that we heard about of how the direct correlation and the reduction of recidivism of those men and women who took that course. So there is a real impact, a direct impact of the arts. Well, I think, I think there is all around and everything. I mean, we've seen it um, with studio in the school with kids um, there, I mean, every time I go to visit one of the classes and hear some artists that have come and talk to the kids, I really am happy. 
I, it makes me so pleased with the fact that um, these kids are really getting a basic, uh, you know, basic understanding of what art can be and do and look like, and and they don't. It doesn't have to be right or wrong. Well, then part of it is that it is what studio in the school teaches is empathy, and we know from the research what empathy can mean in terms of the the ability of of students and as adults ultimately to navigate yeah. society. Well, Frank once came to a, a, a class and he said afterwards, the thing I like about this program and it, it, is that they share, that they are sitting at the same table, they're looking at each other. We were told, I was told all through my art background that I shouldn't show anything that I made to somebody else. They might take the idea. And um, this is really very different from these kids see that they can learn something from the other, but they don't have to copy it. They can have their own ideas, or they can say, you know, I like the way you've used yellow for the feet or whatever they're doing. And somebody isn't saying, you can't do that. And they talk, the wonderful thing about this program is they use language mm -hmm. to talk about it. They learn a lot of language that, um, I mean, I thought from the very beginning that when I had started having these children that um, I had to be sure I talked to them so that they had some knowledge of, of um, words. And I think a lot of these kids don't get talked to. Their parents are either off on two or three jobs, or there's only one of them, so that they don't. Well, one is incarcerated are the kinds of problems that these children face, which yeah. are pretty remarkable. But you should be really proud of Studio in the School well, and the what you've done. Ford Foundation is oh, helping with this. So <laughs> the, this. No commercials for Ford Foundation, dear Aggie. I want to turn to someone who whose philanthropy seems to be boundless. Uh, I, I am um, astounded, David Rubenstein, at the, the sheer diversity and depth of your philanthropy. In fact, um, someone wrote about you that you have pioneered this idea of patriotic philanthropy, um, where you bring the arts and the humanities and American history together. In fact, it seems that you have bought just about every historical document that has ever been produced since the beginning of democracy. Uh, the Magna Carta, the de a Declaration of uh, Independence, an Emancipation Proclamation, and the list goes on and on. Why do you do this, David Rubenstein? Well, uh, let me try to explain. Um, I came from, uh, like many people here probably, very modest uh, financial circumstances. I grew up in a, uh, Baltimore, and my parents uh, were blue-collar workers. My father never made more than $7,000, $8,000 a year as a postal worker. Uh, neither of my parents graduated from um, college or high school. And I grew up in a country where um, somebody with my last name and came from modest circumstances could um, make some financial success, and therefore I felt that I should give back to the country. So when I realized I had made more money than I could conceivably spend or than my family could conceivably really need, I decided to try to give back to the country. And, and so I bought these historic documents to put them on display so that people can see them. Um, and when you see these historic documents, the Magna Carta, Declaration of Independence, the Emancipation Proclamation, the 13th Amendment, when you see the original, you might be inspired to go back and learn a little bit more about the history of these um, documents. And the reason I think that's important is because we know so little about our history. Uh, today, it turns out that uh, three quarters of Americans cannot name the three branches of government. Three quarters of Americans cannot name the three branches of government. One third of Americans cannot name a single right protected by the First Amendment. 35% of Americans, when asked who was the first Treasury Secretary, say Larry Summers, which is not the case. <laughs> 30% of Americans, when asked what river did George Washington cross during the Revolutionary War, will say the Rhine River. And uh, this is hard to believe, but 10% of Americans believe that Judge Judy is on the United States Supreme Court. 
and that's not yet the case. Um, so, <laughs> I, I, I think that my theory is that if people learn more about history, because when you go visit Monticello or Mount Vernon or other places I've been involved with, you're inspired to go back and learn more. If you just see a historic document or see Monticello on a computer slide, you, your brain isn't yet stimulated enough, I think, to go back and learn more history. And if you learn more about our history, the good and the bad, and we have plenty of the bad, um, I think you might create people who are more likely to create a better society. Um, it is hard for me to believe this, but I, I, I can't resist saying it, and it's sad that I think most Americans know so little about our background, in part because we don't teach civics anymore, you can graduate from college and not take an American history course, you can major in history in 80% of our colleges and not have to take an American history course. I don't think most people who were born in this country could take a citizenship test required of immigrants to become citizens and pass it. And that's unfortunate. So my idea is to try to, try to get people to, um, to learn more about history, and I call it patriotic philanthropy, but it's a misnomer because all, all philanthropy is patriotic, really. Um, on terms of, let me just address for a moment the arts. Um, right now, it's very difficult in our politically correct society to, to criticize anybody. You can get, you know, it's hard to do it anymore. So who can you criticize? Who can you make fun of anymore? Well, you can make fun of lawyers. Dr. Lawyer's here, but you can, you, know, you can get away with lawyer jokes occasionally. Um, Senator, you know we can get away with members of Congress jokes, right? You can always make fun of members of Congress. You can get a good laugh with that. And of course, you can always make fun of my profession, private equity. Oh, people are always making fun of that. And it used to be you could make fun of Neanderthals, right? Who was in favor of Neanderthals? Oh, you're a Neanderthal, right? Well, it turns out that the Neanderthals 70,000 years ago put art up on caves in France and Spain. So we can't make fun of Neanderthals anymore because they're actually more talented than we thought. <laughs> but think about this. What the Neanderthals left behind was maybe a few fossils, but they left behind some artwork. And when you think about it, it reminded me what President Kennedy once said. He said, when the dust settles over the cities of our civilization, what we will really remember is not the battles we've fought or the elections we've won, but the spirit of our civilization. That's what remains behind. And so when you all think about your lives, what is it that we're trying to accomplish on the face of the earth? Each of us is here for a finite period of time. And if you get to the point of my age, I'm 68 now, you be increasingly begin to realize you want to do something that creates a legacy. You want to create, do something that reminds people of why you are here. And one of the most lasting things you can do is to create something that is related to the arts, because the arts are the things that make people happy. Thomas Jefferson, in his famous preamble to the Declaration of Independence, said, what we're really all about is life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, he never said what happiness was, and nobody really knows, and it's the most elusive thing in life, personal happiness, as everybody knows. But surely, when you go to an uh, a art gallery, when you go to an art museum, when you go to a performing arts center, when you go to an opera, when you go to a symphony, what you're coming away with is people who are happy afterwards. And when you can create happiness, that's, that's a terrific thing to do. So when you are supporting the arts, what you're doing is you're creating happiness, and what you're also doing is something you're leaving behind, you're helping artists leave behind a legacy so that 70,000 years from today, when people ask what did our civilization do, there will be the works of Frank Stella and, and, and others that will be here that people can... <laughs> and say, this is what this civilization was about. So I just think the arts are so important because it's what really makes us different than other species. The final point is this. Uh, when humans, uh, let's say Homo sapiens, first appeared on the face of the earth, it probably wasn't apparent to all the other animals that were circulating that we would survive and we would ultimately rule the earth, maybe for good or bad. But people looked at us and they'd say, well, they're not as tall as other animals, they're not as... Uh, as uh, fast, they're not as big, but in the end we had one thing, our human brain, which was the best device on the face of the earth, and that human brain enables us to create art. Other species, there are 10 million species on the face of the earth, but none of them really can create anything that is really art that li lives for 70,000 years or more. So what separates humans from other species is our ability to create things that last forever, and that's what we should be proud about as humans, and we should perpetuate that and incent people to create art, all kinds of art, and make sure we preserve the art so that future generations can see it and enjoy it as well. Thank you. Thank you.
Yes, Mark Bradford. Don't look my way. Mark Bradford. So in the summer of 2017, you set Venice on fire with that uh, provocative, uh, disturbing, brilliant installation. What were you trying to achieve? Well, what you just said. I mean, uh, no, what was I trying to achieve? I was basically trying to get my ideas across. I mean, it was a moment of a, a kind of a rupture when kind of uh, it went from the, uh, the kind of the Obama administration to the Trump administration, and there was this kind of um, tumultuous time that was happening. But in the middle of that, I was just basically trying to get my ideas across, this kind of vulnerability that I was feeling, because I felt like it reminded me of the early um, AIDS epidemic, when there was just no answers. In the beginning, it, was, it felt biblical. Um, you, 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 early 80s, you could get it from a mosquito, you could get it from sweat, you could get it from walking out of the house. It was just biblical. And I felt like um, I was in that moment. And so I just tried to embrace it. I tried to just build something that was cohesive and, and put that vulnerability into the work. I was, I was, asking, I was asking myself as many questions as I was presenting. And, um, was there anything that surprised you about the response? How, how much they wanted me to be a spokesman for the whole country. And that was... What I was do you kind mean? Of, well, you know, they kept asking me, like, well, how, do you, how are you feeling? Like, how are you feeling? How are people These in the US feeling? These foreigners asking yeah. you as an American. I thought, well, what do you mean, how am I feeling? How are you feeling? I mean, what? <laughs> I mean, I didn't feel, I didn't feel like... Um, I had that same feeling of one, I, I never wanted to be a representative of anything, an object of something. So this kind of pushing back, because I had two, two, two installations. I had Venice and then I worked with the prison uh, in Rio Terra. And so I kind of would go back and forth between the two. But I just found myself kind of pushing back again, these kind of, what does it feel like to be black? Or what does it feel like to be, again, just kind of pushing back against easy equations and trying to navigate myself through it. So Frank, I would love for you to talk about what has surprised you when you look back over the remarkable legacy. Liquid Prell. Liquid Prell. <laughs> really, Frank? Liquid Prell has surprised you, and why would liquid prell be something you wish to talk about with these people? Well, fluidity, motion. Uh, you know, basically, uh, painting is, is uh, make, there are a lot of ways of making marks, but uh, right now, painting uh, has to have a material that it applies. We're not etching all the time or digging into stone. So I think that uh, it's really, it's really about what you can do and what you can draw from uh, basically what the society and what you have is available to you physically and how you can actually just pick it up, get into it, and use it and uh, feel comfortable with it. And? <laughs> and the, the result is uh, it keeps you busy. I mean, uh, well, you've been busy. Right. But when you think about what you've been busy doing, what's the legacy you want to leave? That's tough. I mean, I, I think legacy is not such a great idea. <laughs> I don't really. <laughs> you know, you could say uh, it's, not, it's just not really interesting. It's I mean, interesting it, it, to all of us because uh, we well, love I, your work. We're inspired by your, the, right, the lessons well, you have taught well, us yeah. through your work. Yeah, well, it, I guess it may survive, but I, I wouldn't really in the end, know anything about that. But you're going to be one of these people David Rubenstein was talking about. I mean, David was just talking about the yeah. fact that we artists will be the people who narrate our history, what you yeah, leave. I, I think all of that's true. But to me personally, it, it, it doesn't have a lot of meaning. Uh, just, it's just not important. Uh, you act and you. You live as long as you can. But you know, you, you're trying to answer questions about what happens in the future, but it's only here and now, especially as you get older. Indeed, indeed. And what do you feel about this, Mark Bradford? Do you, do you, 
You're leaving a legacy. No, I don't even, I think I feel the same as Frank. I don't, it's not something that bleeds into the studio while I'm making a painting or something. I don't, I think, I do. I think just, I think about the here and now. I think about uh, kind of chasing the tail of that dog that went right around the corner. I think of the next thing. I don't, I don't think about the cumulative effect of what I do. I was telling Frank, I walked up to him and I was gushing. I said, oh, I, I read, you, I, read um, I studied you when I was in CalArts. And he kind of looked at me and said, oh yeah, that's nice. You know, like, like let's talk about something now. So um, yeah, I don't think about that. They, they are constantly telling me about that now, legacy and what you leave behind. And I just find it kind of annoying when they start talking that way. Well, it's so nice to meet artists with small egos who aren't <laughs> worried about their legacies. So, Aggie, speaking of legacies, no, wow, what you're doing. To, you add something then, to, to that? No, it's just, I, I have always been sort of a little bit jealous of artists because I felt, I said to Jasper one time, you get to get rid of all the things that you're thinking about and you're worried about and you're um, interested in having changed by by your art. And he said, it doesn't get rid of everything for me. And I guess I'm jealous of the fact that I can't make art. And I would like to see that happen because I, I do think that you're freed a lot by making art because you can get completely. Yeah, we can get out. Do you feel free, Frank? Do you, does, art, does making art make you feel freer? Does it liberate you in some way? I don't know. I, I think I can't tell if you're serious. I mean, I'm very serious. <laughs> I'm very serious. I mean, emotionally, what Aggie is saying is that she used to say to Jasper, but, but, you I mean, have this out. I mean, emotions are great, but breathing and eating are, you know, is essential. <laughs> and I mean, you, you, live the, uh, you live the best you can. I mean, uh, you know, it, it depends how far you want to go thinking about the problems and, and what you can do. I mean, it's nice to talk about art and say how limited it is and uh, what it can do and all of those things. But in terms of uh, any larger picture of self or society, it's, very, it's still very small. I mean, after all, some people are as perverse as I am, I suppose, who think that after all, you know, your consciousness is only an illusion. And so if you're there, you've got a problem. Okay, so, so you, you make an interesting point, though, because uh, I, would, I would observe that artists have been at the forefront of change, of social progress. Certainly, if you look at the 20th century, the artists who, the painters, the sculptors, the entertainers, the singers. Yeah, but look what happened in Moscow. I mean, Malevich didn't end up so good, and there are a lot of the avant-garde Russian painters that didn't come to a happy ending. Right, but you and, look at the United I mean, States. Revolution and... is based on the idea that the first people you get rid of are the elite and the artists and the intellectuals. That's right. Well, yeah, they come yes. Don't forget. Yes. <laughs> okay. So, Mark. All right. On that note, Mark, why don't you? Talk a little bit about this video that we saw of a, a boy who lived in the hood, in, in the neighborhood uh, that you, uh, where your studio is, mm -hmm. that um, caused such a sensation. And uh, it was about identity in some way, and it was about uh, a queer identity of some sort? Yeah. Is that a fair? Yeah, I mean, I mean, come on, girl. You know, he was, he was working the runway. Um, so the, I just, it was just basically a long shot based on a Marilyn Monroe movie called Niagara. And this young man would walk in front of my studio all the time, and he would just be swishing, honey, just going back and forth. But what I loved about him was, and this is what I'm always looking for. I'm looking for the detail that points to something different. The narrative around South Central is always formed around this hyper-violence or hyper-masculinity. And so I saw this detail of a body that possibly something bad could happen or something good could happen. And so I just take these little details and I expand it to hold all these kind of ideas. Because oftentimes when I'm walking, there are certain areas where my body, my physicality, I feel in danger, and there's sometimes when I don't. I think that 
your body, depending on where you're navigating in the, in the city, it, 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 the context changes. And so I really wanted to talk about the possibility of violence or the possibility of something good and the architecture of kind of um, the city in a way and how it's constantly changing. Um, I'm not, sometimes I will not drive down a street if I don't know where I'm going. I just won't drive slow. And Why I is that? Yeah, because I'm just not, mm -mm. if I don't know the neighborhood and gonna drive slow and knock on a door that I'm not sure, no, I know. Okay. okay. A little uncomfortable. Okay. A little Aaron. uncomfortable. David. Can I make a point about the access to arts? Um, in the city where we're now, Washington, very often what you find is that when Congress is cutting spending, um, very often they cut the arts. And one of the reasons is that it's often thought by Congress, and not just only Congress, administrations do it, and governments have been doing this, not just this Congress, or, but previous Congresses, and it's not just Congress, it's local school boards and it's local uh, um, governments and state governments. They tend to think of the arts as something that's ancillary to life, not essential for it. And I think we should try to, the best we can to try to convince policymakers that art is essential to one's being and to life, and it's not something that you can add on or take away. So that when we have arts education classes um, and the money is a little tight, we get rid of arts education classes, but we keep some of the other subjects. All the subjects are important, but arts shouldn't be seen up as less significant. And if we want to create a society in this country where people feel that they are really going to be able to reach their full potential as a human, they need to be able to understand what the arts are about. They should be able to understand the performing arts, the visual arts, and other arts, and get an education about it, so that when they're older, they can either choose to be an artist if they want, but they can also support the arts, because the arts will always be underfunded. No matter what you say, the arts are always going to be underfunded, relatively speaking. And even though the highest, most valuable works of art get very high prices when they're bought, as a general rule of thumb, artists are underfunded, and the people who are performing art are often underfunded. And so I think one of the missions that we should always have if we care about the arts is making clear to policymakers that arts are not something that's ancillary and it's an add-on, but it's really essential to create well-rounded human beings who are likely to be able to pursue happiness much better than if they don't have the arts. So for, you spend a lot of time as an arts advocate. What frustrates you about being an arts advocate? Well, of course, um, when I was in the first grade, I thought I was going to be an artist. And then the second grade, I realized I wasn't going to be. Um, it, was, it was pretty clear. <laughs> so that frustrates you. Well, clearly, um, every performing arts institution in the United States uh, cannot make it on its own. It needs philanthropy. Uh, there just isn't enough government support, and there isn't enough ticket sales that are going to make it on its own. Every art museum, every every um, thing that, pr that provides art access to people so they can see visual arts or, or, or uh, performing arts, it has to be subsidized by somebody. Historically, in Europe, it was subsidized by governments. But now, in this country, we haven't really been doing that so much recently, and we tend to subsidize it by philanthropists. And maybe that can continue that way, and maybe that's not a bad thing. But we have to recognize that you have to have some kind of subsidy because there isn't enough ability to support it on its own. So all of us probably should feel some obligation to give back to society. And one of the ways you can give back is supporting the arts and in many different ways. Because when you buy tickets or when you are a patron, you're supporting them, but also by giving philanthropy. And I wouldn't like to remind people that when, you, when you're supporting somebody with philanthropy, philanthropy is an ancient Greek word that means loving humanity. It doesn't mean writing checks. Now, of course, writing checks is helpful, but you can support, uh, you can provide philanthropy with your time, your energy, your ideas. And the most valuable thing you can give is your time. You can always make more money or can make more money if you try hard enough to do so. You can't make more time. Time is the only thing that we don't have more of. But So when you're giving your time, you're volunteering for performing arts organizations, visual arts organizations, you're giving something that's very valuable. And without the volunteers and without the philanthropists and without the patrons, we really can't have something like the National Gallery of Art. We can't really have something like the Smithsonian or the Kennedy Center or Lincoln Center. And so in this, and take the Smithsonian, for example, uh, I happen to be the chair of the Board of Regents. We get about two-thirds of our money for 
uh, from the government, but one third comes from philanthropy and other related kinds of uh, sources. I think the National Gallery Art is probably about 75 to 80% supported by the government, maybe 20, 25% comes from other sources. And you were not gonna get enough money from the government to ever provide 100%. So when you think about taking advantage of all the great things in Washington or around the country, you should realize that you need to provide some type of support for it. If it's not uh, money, it's your time, your energy, your ideas, because if you don't do so, in the end, the arts are gonna wither away, because there isn't gonna be enough government money to support a lot of the things we want. So, Aggie, you spend a lot of time advocating for the arts, too. And um, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about your experience in New York City, uh, where you founded Studio in a School, and this program has uh, certainly affected the lives of hundreds of thousands, if not millions of children, but it has always struggled to have the budget that it needs uh, to fulfill its mission. Oh, well that, that is, you know, coming out of what David said, it is, does take, um, a check or money to do some things, but you also have to have the real care about it, the real love of what it is that I think, um, you, you know, has to go into the idea of philanthropy. If you can't write a check or if you can't buy something um, to do something with or invest in a, in a project, you've got to have the willingness to see that somebody's got to do it and you've got to talk about it, talk with them, get it done. Uh, it's the same thing that we should be doing with politics, but we're really not doing it right now in this country. We, we should be really talking to people about what they see that's needed in a president in the future or what is, um, what they see about building things. I'll never forget one um, time I was with a group of people listening to Christo, and um, this woman raised her hand. She said, how come you're not interested in supporting hospitals instead of some you know, useless piece of art out there? And he said, it's not the same thing. I'm not. This isn't going into to hospitals. My ideas for doing these things are what is causing them to happen. And um, I think that's, you. everybody, you've got to get people to be more uh, impassioned by what they want to see happen and what they see done. Maybe this is, um, for me, the only way I can do art, since I can't do art. <laughs> but you are doing art, and I think one of the things that you've taught us is that everyone deserves beauty. Yeah. We, in this country, have gotten ourselves into this paradigm where, and where art needs to be justified. Some econometric model, um, tell me what it does for local development um, or tax revenue, um, and that if it passes that hurdle, then the art is justified. But one of the things you've taught us, Aggie, is that beauty is something that should be in everyone's life. And, and so often what happens is, David, and you experience this because people will say they only want to give to things they can measure. Um, and therefore, unless it can be measured, we have a lot of philanthropists who are in the Giving Pledge, and there are some of the prominent Giving Pledge members who, who talk about that. Yes, um, what you're referring to is this. Um, many people who have been lucky in the business world have made money and they think that the techniques that used to make money in the business world are techniques you can use in the philanthropy world, which is to say, um, in the business world, you have a profit loss statement, you can figure out whether you're making money or not. So they like to apply the same type of metrics, more or less, to the uh, philanthropic world and to measure with great um, quantitative detail whether their money is having the effect they wanted. And you know, in my case, I, I 
I'm not criticizing those that do it that way, but I have a different way of doing, looking at it. I just try to think what is it that can be useful and try to give money to people who uh, seem like they're going to be able to help what you want to do and don't be so um, analytical about it because I just think you can drive the people doing the work to distort what they're doing to make the numbers look better. But I think people should give money and give their time, their time and their energy and ideas because it makes them happy to do so as well. Uh, I have a theory that philanthropists live longer. Um, grumpy people don't live as long. And happy people live longer. So David Rockefeller made it to 101 or so. Um, I was at a event at uh, Harvard last night and we're talking about a man whose facility we were in. He was Albert Gordon, he made it to 107. And so if, you, if you're happy, you'll live longer. As I say, you're happy is, is, is you know, a hard thing to achieve, but if you're happy by giving away money, your time, your ideas, you will live longer, and then there is a special place in heaven reserved for those people who are philanthropists. <laughs> now you laugh, but why would you want to take a chance that I'm wrong? So, um, but uh, to be very serious, I do think that when you are helping other people, it's a human instinct to want to help other people. It's different than perhaps uh, other species. Other species might help their, their own children or something, but they don't tend to help their species as much. We have a natural human tendency to want to help other people, and I think when you do that, you feel better about yourself. And when you feel better about yourself, I think life is worth living more. And so all of you who have given away your time, your energy, your ideas, probably are happy about it. When you, when you give a scholarship to somebody, you, nobody says, well, geez, I gave a scholarship to some child, he can go to college now, I'm not happy about myself, I hate myself for doing that. Nobody says that. You're happy because you've done something that in my religion we would call a mitzvah, something that is good. And we uh, should try to incent our younger people to think about doing more that they can to give to the arts, participate in the arts, participate in giving back to society. Arts is just one part of society, but it's an important part, and it's the part that the government is likely to uh, give the least amount of money to when, when times are tough. In, in, uh, when, when de Tocqueville came to this country in the 1830s and he wrote his famous book about America, he said one of the characteristics of America that defied his previous experience was everybody here was in a volunteer association. Everybody was volunteering for things. And the reason for that was this. In Europe, the government or the church paid for everything, the arts, artists, and so forth. But in our country, we didn't have any wealth at the beginning, so people had to volunteer their time, their energy, their ideas, and we began the tradition of philanthropy in this country. We lead the world in philanthropy. We give about 2.5% of our GDP every year to philanthropy, which is double more than any other country does percentage-wise. And we should continue to um, encourage people to give their time, their energy, their ideas, their money if they have it. And this, I think, will make create a greater happiness, but also make a greater society, because again, the government can't support all the things that it should support. It just doesn't have the resources, particularly in the arts. So David Rubenstein says, give away all your money and you'll be happy. <laughs> well, how many tortured billionaires have you met who, you know, they, they're sitting there with all their money and, you know, you, they, sometimes they want to build a pyramid uh, and put all their wealth in it and be buried with it. You can't really do that. It's not necessarily going to produce happiness. So the, the happiest people I have met are the people who are the most philanthropic. So artists give. Artists give a lot, too. So I want to hear from the two artists because, you know, what's interesting is artists are always being hounded to give. Give me a piece of art for my auction. Give me a studio visit. Let me auction off dinner with you. All of these things, these ways in which uh, we uh, people come at you artists. So Mark, you give a lot. In fact, you in some ways are pioneering uh, something you call art and practice. So you have, uh, you have basically embedded yourself in a, in, a, in a community. You have become a big landlord. You bought buildings and blocks of this neighborhood. Uh, you're running social service programs in the community. Uh, you have an art gallery in the community where you present really very well-known uh, artists. Um, this is a different model for an artist's engagement. Well, I, I, it really was all really just very organic. I mean, it, you, it's true, we are asked to do quite a bit. But then um, I think I started to begin to think about not just diversity, not just kind of like, oh, we'll I have a few women of color shows or a few women shows or a few. I started to think about like, like equity, like power, and like how can we kind of have ownership more 
And so for me, that meant to um, give more people access to these ideas. But what was happening, what I became very much aware of is that these, these kind of contemporary ideas were circulating in kind of um, just kind of in the, the art world. And if you weren't part of that, you weren't having access to this. So I thought, well, and then if you do the, kind of do the math, all the artists oftentimes that get the studio visits or get the, they're not, the net that they're casting isn't that, sometimes can't be, can't reach all pockets. So I thought, well, why not take these ideas and just put them in a, a local neighborhood? But why did you buy all that real estate? You're like a huge landlord. Well, that's just because my mom owned a beauty shop and she never bought anything and we just kept moving and moving and moving. And so I just thought, well, the be and, and I thought artists should, if you get a little couple dollars, you should buy your studio so nobody can take it away from you. So it just made sense to me. If I really wanted to, to, to put down roots in this community, I needed to buy something so that it wouldn't be taken away from me. And I think that's the only When I was there with you, we walked around and you, the, one of the things you said to me was that you want to keep the, uh, the sort of indigenous uh, local shopkeepers uh, who always lose their leases when the neighborhood is being gentrified, which that neighborhood in LA is being gentrified. And I think it's a really interesting approach. You and Rick Lowe and the Astor Gates and a number of you are really pioneering a new way of thinking about how artists engage in community. Um, and so you're setting a a really interesting model. Well, it just, I just, it just made sense to me. I think that these ideas are interesting, but I think that we can move out of these silos and we can have these same conversations in different parts of the city. Same conversation, just in different parts of the city. I was in Baltimore and I gave the same artist talk, but I just gave it in a local black black church because I said, well, I want to, I want to give. If you want to get the black people, you got to go to church, right? <laughs> You, you don't have to keep wondering, oh, where are the black people? Well, find them and then go there. So for me, it was, that was the same thing with, and, I, and, and really what kind of came into my mind all the time is, where's the next local, how are we gonna get the next local mark? On his way to the liquor store or on his way to go buy something for his mom because that was my, how are we gonna expose him as early as we possible can to contemporary ideas to push back against traditional norms of gender, race, class, and all that. Does he have to leave his community constantly, or can we catch him earlier? And so for me, that, that's really what it became about. Now, of course, I, only, I thought that at the same time, dealing with social urgency, um, and in that area, foster youth is epidemic. It, it felt like I, I, I decided to partner it. They became neighbors. Sometimes neighbors have nothing in common when they move next door to each other, and through just organic, Time moves on, they find this kind of common ground. So although, and that's what's happening. Um, so it was just all just organic. And I think that the ideas, progressive ideas, can be spread in more areas. Darren, um, I would like to just make a comment about, some people may not be completely familiar with what FAPE actually does. And before we conclude, we have, I would like to talk about what FAPE has done. Uh, FAPE is an organization that Joe Carroll Louder uh, has really created, and Eden Rafshun, and she really run it more or less day to day. But thank you very much for doing that. And Aggie, you've been very involved as well. But in, in, in our country, we have embassies around about maybe 200 or so embassies. We have countries we have relationships with. And when you go into an embassy, and I assume most people here have traveled overseas, though it turns out a very small percentage of people in the United States actually have traveled, but I assume out of the country. But most people here probably have traveled overseas. How many people here have been overseas? Everybody? Okay, so when you go into an embassy overseas, you sometimes go to the American embassy overseas if you're an American, but most people go into embassies from the United States or people who live in that country. That might be the German embassy, Germans go there more than Americans are going there. When you go into those embassies now, what you have because of FAPE's uh, work is you have works of art by great American artists like those here who have donated those works of art to FAPE and they are put on display in the embassies so that when you're a German citizen going into the US embassy in Germany, you can see some of the great works of American arts. Now why is that important? What's well, important because 
it shows people in Germany the culture of America and might stimulate them to think more about America and maybe they'll think better of America because of the wonderful culture, wonderful arts we have. So that's one of the programs that FAPE has, but it's one of the most visible things and it's one of the things that I think uh, we should thank you all for doing because now anywhere in the world when you go to an American embassy, you're going to see the works of art uh, that have been produced by American artists and those who have generated, generously donated those works of art are to be uh, congratulated. So thank you for what you've done. Thank you. So, how do, you, how do you see yourself as an artist and the work that you do, Frank, being observed by people who are outside of this country as representing the best of American art? You know, I don't know if I'm remembering correctly, but we, in the very beginning, the program was to <clears throat> uh, put art in the, in the embassies, but it, it wasn't given. I mean, uh, it was loaned, I think. That, um, in the very beginning, the program, uh, we were, but, but nobody actually, asked us to be that generous. Nobody wanted. Joe Carroll but has they, asked you to be that generous, yeah, actually, right. and you have. It's, 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 no, you have, you have been. Later, but that was Right, that because was that was the commissioned pieces. Right, but that was much later than yes. the program. You have a long history with this program, yeah. but the commission pieces is what David is referring to. And so, no, no, it's fine, but I'm just saying that it, the idea was not so much about giving. The idea was to make, bring the art to the embassies. And the reason, uh, which is obvious, it wasn't anything about Americans or how great the art was. It was there was a real desire to see the works that were coming from America, and they happened to be mostly uh, abstract art, the favorite kind of art of the CIA. But anyway, ab <laughs> the abstract art was, was popular uh, with the other, uh, and mostly a part of the Cold War. I mean, that was really what it was about. It was about behind the Iron Curtain, and when it was about uh, Russia, and then it, it gradually expanded to be about Asia. It was uh, spheres of interest uh, where they wanted to send American art, but the, the desire to send it, I think, is not, as everyone wants to see, is a, a thing about America wanting to send their art there. That is true up, probably up to a point, but there was a real desire to have it sent. Yes. And I think that's the part that's really hard to understand. Absolutely. It's still hard for me to understand it. Uh, well, but, but in, uh, but in part, it was, it, was, it was sent because there was a view by the United States government that we were in a, we were in a, a war of, of culture with, with the Soviets, and we wanted to show the best of America. And so there was, we sent art, we, we sent visual art, we sent the dance comedy. The US government has its own program, yes, and that's yes. different than what FAPE does. Right, exactly. FAPE is a that private sector program. Yes. Yes, what Frank is saying is the early work going back to the 1960s during the Kennedy administration when, when the idea of cultural diplomacy was first discussed and we sent art in all disciplines around the world in an effort to demonstrate um, American culture to the world at a time when there was truly a contest between the United States and between Russia. One of the interesting tidbits. Which is, of course, tidbits, not the case anymore, right? Well, but one of the interesting, one of the interesting tidbits of the Ford Foundation history is the largest grant to the arts we ever made was to the School of American Ballet, and the reason we made that grant was a direct uh, response to Russian ballet. We had our own uh, uh, great uh, ballet master in Mr. Balanchine. And he said, to beat the Russians, we need to have a school that is better than the Bolshoi. And so... We still do. <laughs> we, we and other philanthropists stepped up to, to build the School of American Ballet because it truly was a Sputnik moment. And we wanted to have a company that was... We wanted to beat the Russians at their own game. Yeah, all of that's true, probably, but it doesn't... It, it doesn't get to the point of why it was received. If there's such a degree of conflict and such a, a difference uh, about the opinion and about what should be done, why did it happen and why did it continue to happen? That's the part I, you know, I don't actually really understand. But you can't, it was never rejected. So if an American culture was sent out, uh, for example, uh, I guess it relates in some kind of mysterious way 
nothing could ever stop the advance of the blue jeans, right? Whether there, there hasn't been a political or any kind of way of thinking about being alive that can deal with the blue gene. Yes. <laughs> yes. So there's no resistance. There's no resistance because there's something really remarkable and fantastic about it yeah, that you, people you around the world resonate. What's remarkable about it to us of, the, of what the art that we sent. But what's remarkable is their ability to absorb it. And the yeah. reason they can absorb it is they know plenty about it. And it wouldn't have happened if it hadn't happened if they didn't know a lot about it and set the precedence of what made it possible for us to do it in the first place. So, I mean, if you don't get the circle, the circle, you don't get yes. what's happening, then, I mean, it's not to the point. Yes. Okay, Frank has made his point. So, I am being given a signal that it is time to close. Um, I want to thank you all. I want to thank Rusty Powell and the trustees of the National Gallery for uh, welcoming us. Um, I want to thank this uh, terrific panel and um, thank you all for coming this evening for this conversation. This has been a National Gallery of Art podcast.